morning, everybody. Um, and welcome to our latest weekly update covering the financial sanctions which have been imposed by the UK, Europe and the US as the war in Ukraine continues to escalate. I'm Alex Webster, I'm a managing associate in our crime team and I will be covering off the UK and Europe updates from the last week. We'll then play a video recorded yesterday evening by Bruce Paulson and Andrew Jacobson, who are sanctions experts at US firm Seward & Kissel. Um, and we're going to finish up by hearing about tax considerations from two of our corporate tax partners here at Simmons, Nick Skerritt and Tomoko Ikawa, which is something we haven't covered in previous updates, so will be an interesting new topic to hear about. Um, before I get started, just to note that Simmons are also hosting a webinar this Friday um, covering the sanctions that Russia are beginning to impose on foreign investors and um, how you might protect investments under international treaties. Um, so if that's something that you'd be interested in, um, you can register via the link in the resource tab at the bottom of your screen. So please do join us for that as well. Um, so getting started on the changes in the UK. So since you've last heard from us uh, a week ago, there have been a number of very high profile designations that have been made, um, including on the 10th of March, uh, an asset freeze was applied to seven um, well-known oligarchs, including Roman Abramovich, Oleg Deripaska, Igor Sechin and others. Now, the designation of Mr Abramovich in particular has had a number of ramifications. As I'm sure many of you, or maybe all of you will know, he's the owner of Chelsea Football Club, um, which is now also subject to an asset freeze as a result of his designation. Um, Offsies issued a general licence in relation to the club, uh, which authorises until the end of May um, various activities which allow for its continued operation. So further designations were made also on the 11th of March, with uh, 386 members of the Russian state Duma now being made subject to an asset freeze um, for their support of treaties that recognise the independence of Luhansk and Donetsk. Uh, on the 15th of March, so yesterday, um, the UK designated a further 350 individuals and entities, including members of the Russian Federation Council and senior officials and associates of the Russian government. Uh, a further second tranche of sanctions was issued later on yesterday as well, adding a further 12 individuals and two entities to the asset freeze regime. Now, most of these individuals and entities have previously been sanctioned by the EU, Canada and the US and have now been designated by the UK on the basis that the purpose or rationale for which they were sanctioned under those overseas regimes corresponds or is similar to the purposes of the UK's Russian sanction regulations and that their designation is in, in the public interest in the UK as well. Um, now, in making these designations, the UK has used its new powers under the Economic Crime, Transparency and Enforcement Act, which also came into force yesterday, so it's, so it's all happening. Um, and I will explain those powers in a bit more detail uh, as, as we move on. So also yesterday, um, a further nine individuals and one entity were added to the UK's cyber sanctions regime, which targets uh, persons, entities or bodies who are involved in cyber activity, which undermines the integrity, prosperity or security of the UK or another country or an international organisation um, is intended to cause loss to others or um, intended to affect a large number of people. So moving on from the asset freezes, there have been a number of other developments in the UK sanctions regime in the last week, um, including on the 9th of March, um, the UK implemented the Sixth Amendment to the Russian sanctions regulations, which brings into force certain aircraft and trade sanctions. The same day, also on the 9th of March, the UK Business Secretary announced that uh, the UK would be phasing out the import of Russian oil and oil products uh, by the end of this year. 
On the 11th of March, um, the UK has also committed publicly to introducing a number of further sanctions measures um, in a statement made together with the EU and other members of the G7. And these uh, further measures will include uh, work to deny Russia its most favoured nation status on key products, um, steps to prevent Russia from obtaining financing from the leading multilateral financial institutions, so including the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, um, work to maintain the effectiveness of sanctions, particularly in relation to digital assets, um, and consistent with that, also on the 11th of March, OFSI, the FCA and the Bank of England published a joint statement on sanctions and the crypto asset sector. So if that's uh, a, an area that you are involved in, it's certainly worth having a look at that. Um, the G7 statement also commits to imposing further import and export restrictions on key goods and technologies, including luxury goods, and to, to continue to take steps to prevent Russian entities who support Russia's aggression against Ukraine from accessing new debt and equity investments and other forms of international capital. So, as I mentioned, the other most significant development uh, that's happened uh, yesterday is the coming into force of the Economic Crime Transparency and Enforcement Act, which has been fast-tracked through the legislative process over the last few weeks. Now, this act implements a number of different reforms, but including um, various changes in relation to sanctions, which I'll highlight now. Um, the first point to note is that the process for making new sanctions regulations has now been significantly streamlined. Um, the second point is, is one which I've alluded to already, that there is now provision within the Act which enables the UK government to designate people for a period of 56 days under an urgent procedure where they're subject to similar sanctions by the US, the EU, Australia, Canada or another specified country and their designation is in the public interest in the UK as well. Now what this means in practice is that the UK does not have to demonstrate before designating a person under, uh, under the sanctions regime that that person has been involved in an activity which undermines the purpose of the regulations and, and the sanctions regulations are generally brought in um, with a view to preventing terrorism, promoting national and international security, uh, re resolving armed conflict, ensuring respect for human rights, um, etc. So it's not necessary for the UK to demonstrate that the person being designated has been involved in an activity which undermines any of those purposes. Um, all that must be shown is that um, they've been designated by another country, those that I mentioned, under a provision which corresponds or is similar to sanctions that may be imposed in the UK or under a provision which is made for uh, corresponding or similar purposes to the UK sanctions regime. Now, what this is going to mean is that it is essentially there's been a significant relaxation of the threshold that the UK government is required to meet in, in at least bringing in an initial designation against uh, an individual. And what we will see now is going, is going to be much uh, swifter and more coordinated um, designations uh, being taken by the UK together with the US and the EU. The second um, key point to note about the Economic Crime Transparency and Enforcement Act is that it includes a provision um, which essentially means that civil sanctions breaches will be treated as matters of strict liability. So uh, penalties can now be imposed of up to a million pounds or 50% of the estimated value of funds involved in a sanctions breach, whichever is the greater of those two figures, um, without the authorities needing to demonstrate that the person who is in breach knew or had reasonable cause to suspect that they were in breach. Um, so the obvious consequence of this is going to be, I think, an increase in enforcement action, at least civil enforcement action. So that's a sort of rundown of the main developments on the UK side. 
In the EU, the key measures of developments to note include the application of additional sectoral sanctions on Belarus on the 10th of March um, to ensure a closer alignment between the Belarusian and Russian sanctions regimes. And then also yesterday, uh, a fairly significant package of further sanctions measures was introduced, which includes some of the, men uh, the measures that were um, committed to in the G7 statement, which I've mentioned earlier. So these key measures that came in yesterday include the designation of a further 15 individuals and entities, including a number of Russian oligarchs, including Roman Abramovich, um, uh, people working for pro-Russian media and various entities. Um, also yesterday, a prohibition has been introduced on the sale, supply, transfer or export of certain goods and technologies for use in the energy sector. And, and these previous goods and technologies were subject to a requirement for prior authorization, but not, a, not an outright prohibition. Um, there has also been introduced an investment ban and a prohibition on making available any new loans or financing to any Russian and non-EU entities operating in the energy sector in Russia. Um, and so, and so that's very significant. And it's also prohibited to enter into any new joint venture with any of those energy sector entities as well. Um, we've also seen a prohibition on the import, purchase and transport of Russian iron and steel products as well as a prohibition on the sale, supply, transfer or export of certain high value luxury goods. And by high value, they mean uh, goods which have a value of over 300 euros. And there's some quite interesting um, goods which are on, on the pro prohibition or within the scope of the prohibition includes things like purebred breeding horses, caviar, truffles, um, alcoholic drinks, um, cigars, perfumes, cosmetics, uh, leather goods, clothing, carpets and rugs, jewellery, um, appliances, multimedia equipment, vehicles, watches, uh, musical instruments, art and sports equipment. So that's a very broad um, prohibition that has now been brought into force. Um, there has also been a prohibition on engaging in any transaction with various state-owned and controlled entities um, who had previously been identified as subject to an investment ban and restriction on making available new loans uh, only. So that's significantly expanded. Um, finally, a prohibition has been introduced now on providing credit rating services and subscriptions to any Russian nationals or residents um, who are not nationals or residents of member states. Um, so that's it, a fairly quick canter through uh, of the changes in the UK and the EU. Um, and now I will hand over and we will hear from uh, Seward and Kissel on the US position. Hello, everybody. Bruce Paulson and Andrew Jacobson again from the Seward and Kissel sanctions team. Uh, we've had extensive developments uh, over the last week. Uh, things are moving very quickly. We have new executive orders as well as the sanctioning of a number of uh, oligarchs. Um, Andrew, why don't you tell us a little bit about what's happened over the past week uh, from a U.S. perspective? Sure. Uh, U.S. developments are, are moving at a rapid pace. And so within the past week, the U.S. has imposed a number of new restrictions. Uh, firstly, the U.S. has announced, really issued a new, new executive order that bans the import of certain Russian energy products, including oil, petroleum, coal, and other uh, similar types of products. Uh, the U.S. has also prohibited new investments in the Russian energy sector under that same executive order. Uh, the U.S. even more recently, uh, on March 11th, has now banned the import and export of certain luxury products to and from uh, Russia and into the United States. 
as well as prohibiting the export of certain or, or really not certain, but of U.S. dollar banknotes to Russia, subject to some limited exceptions for personal non-commercial remittances. Um, you know, additionally, Bruce mentioned oligarch sanctions. The U.S., in line with the EU and the U.K., has continued to progressively add oligarchs, Russian government officials, defense officials, uh, and Belarus government officials to its sanctions list. Uh, so starting March 11th, March 14th, and March 15th, the U.S. has continued to add those senior government and non-governmental officials to its sanctions list. And that really seems to be a trend that will continue for the near term. Have there been any particular um, compliance challenges um, due to these new developments? Yeah, th- th- there have been. I think these new sanctions have presented new and novel compliance challenges and also have recalibrated or, re- or brought back up some old challenges. You know, I think the first hand, just keeping up with all of the developments has been extremely challenging. And this is one of the largest, most substantial sanctions implementations that the U.S. has ever done. The fact that it's coordinated with allies has made it increasingly difficult for companies, not just in the U.S., but located in other countries and other jurisdictions to keep up the differing and sometimes conflicting laws, you know, also understanding, uh, you know, the uh, performing KYC and understanding ownership control, uh, you know, as well as digging up beneficiaries of counterparties, investors, that's been a particular compliance challenge. And I think lastly, you know, predicting the future, trying to get a sense of where these sanctions are going to go next so that you're prepared. That's really a question that we're getting a lot of. And ultimately, what it comes down to is having a flexible compliance program, one that can adapt very quickly to new developments and implement those new challenges and new legal rules going forward. In the two minutes we have left, there's been a lot of focus lately on the virtual currency industry. What is the risk that cryptocurrencies and other digital assets uh, could be used for sanctions evasion? It's a good question. It's a risk that those in the blockchain and cryptocurrency industry have been talking about for years. The idea that virtual currencies could be used by bad actors to either circumvent sanctions or to just simply launder proceeds of criminal activity. Now, I think that the general view now is that the risk is still fairly low for several reasons, which I'll get into. That being said, U.S. regulators are very hot on the issue. Uh, OFAC issued a new uh, frequently asked question. It's question, it's, it's FAQ 1021, which essentially said that virtual currencies are to be treated the same as fiat currency for the purposes of OFAC sanctions compliance. Well, that's not a new message. We always knew that virtual currencies are treated the same as fiat for sanctions purposes. Uh, and to that end, FinCEN, which is also under the Treasury Department in the U.S., it's the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, issued guidance recently uh, detailing you know, red flags for potential uh, evasion and laundering uh, using cryptocurrencies. And so, you know, the question of whether Russia, the Russian government, Russian financial institutions, et cetera, could use digital assets to circumvent U.S. sanctions, you know, it's still primarily a logistics issue. Liquidity is a challenge right now in Russia. Cryptocurrency infrastructure is a challenge in Russia because Russia essentially banned cryptocurrency prior to the invasion. And so the idea that they could all of a sudden incorporate digital assets in the, into their, you know, their, their financial uh, framework would be a really a big challenge. And the last thing I'd say on this point, because I know we're short on time, is you know, if you want to think about cryptocurrencies being used for evasion, look to Venezuela. Venezuelan government had tried to issue the Petro, which, is a digi- which was a digital asset. The U.S. sanctioned it the moment it was issued, and that 
asset went nowhere. And so to the extent that Russia is considering the same kind of an issuance, I think U.S. regulators are going to be following that very closely. Well, thank you, Andrew. Uh, a great update. Back to the moderator. I think we have a problem with Alex's microphone. Oh, I can hear you now, Nick. Please, uh, please go ahead. I thought you were seeing me, and so I'll, I'll, I'll just crack on. So, the, the impact of the sanctions regime on taxes is far from clear at the moment. We we're not going to give many detailed answers this morning, but what we wanted to do is, is address really to this this point. Every situation is going to need to be addressed on its merits and its own facts. But what we wanted to do is highlight the issues that our uh, corporations are going to need to, to, to address and grapple with here. And that falls under three headings. The first of which is actually paying taxes in Russia and the ability to do so. The second is what impact the sanctions regime is going to have on your operational structure and supply chains. And then thirdly, what how this impacts on risk of disputes. Now, taking the first of those, uh, those first, which is the, the question that we, we've been asked by clients is, what what is the sanctions regime now for tax liabilities that I may have in Russia? How can I actually pay that? Well, the, there's two, that's a twofold question. One is, can you pay the taxes? And actually, practically, can you make the payments given the, given the impact of the regime? So whilst President Putin and the members of the Duma in themselves are sanctioned individuals, the sanctions in themselves don't actually apply to the Russian government in, in the sense of prohibiting the payment of taxes itself. Now, there is a debate to be had about whether UK provisions on President Putin and, and his level of control in, in judging the context of an autocratic regime could extend. So in principle, we, we think that actually the position is that taxes can be paid, but Given the prohibition on financial transactions involving the Russian central bank, can you actually make those payments? Well, the position in the US seems to be the clearest of those where there is a general license provision that enables payment of taxes and duties that are incidental on day-to-day -day operations in Russia, which would appear to facilitate those payments, and that, that's enforced, I believe, until I think it's 28th of June. But that does need some care and further consideration if you're dealing with situations that involve a sanctioned individual or industries that, that, that are special. The UK position, however, is less clear. The government announcement on the 28th of February said in quite clear terms that all transactions would be prohibited with the Russian Central Bank. But that doesn't actually seem to be reflected in the wording of the regulations themselves, which in turn, to Regulation 17 prohibits dealings in loans and credit arrangements, and Reg 18A that deals with foreign exchange reserve and asset management. Now, those two on the wording wouldn't seem to catch payment of taxes. Is that a partial implementation of the regime, and could we expect to see further, given the clear link between tax payments and funding the government's agenda and, and military actions? You know, that remains to be seen. 
It's a similar position in the EU with a clear statement, again, about prohibiting all financial transactions with the Russian Central Bank, but again, not reflected in the wording of the measures. So on balance, it looks like taxes are payable, but there's some potential real difficulties with, with, with getting money to move. So a final note on this before I hand over to Tomoko. If those of you out there are considering whether from an ESG perspective you should actually be paying taxes to Russia regardless of the liability, of course, remember that deliberate non-payment of taxes brings you into evasionary regimes, and that in itself obviously has some consequences to be considered. But to make it Yeah, thanks, Nick. Um, yes, as Nick has just said, I, I think we're going to be anticipating a lot of challenge around how to pay tax in Russia um, to comply with um, the Russian tax law obligations. But the question of how much tax to pay in Russia, that's not going to be easy either. Um, so, you know, given the various changes that multinationals are going through around their business operations in Russia. So, I mean, in that respect, I think there are broadly two scenarios. So one is some have essentially caused operations, whether that's not opening their stores in Russia, you know, stopping the export import, might be halting manufacturing operations, etc. Um, and then the other is some have decided to pull out of Russia, and this could involve you know, terminating contracts completely, selling off Russian operations. But and in both of these cases, there may also be changes to supply chain, which may also be necessary due to the, the you know some of the sanctions that were talked about earlier. So. Um, yeah, so if there are supply chain um, disruptions, what does that mean? You might have been relying on certain goods being imported from Russia. You'll now have to source from somewhere else. Um, all of this, the, the, all the business operational changes, what does this mean from a tax perspective? Well, first of all, there are the transfer pricing implications of pausing Russian operations, because this will likely mean that there'll be reduced profits for the multinational. And the, the question becomes, well, I guess, depending on the structure, do you also reduce the tax to be paid in Russia? And do the contracts allow you to make these changes to the tax position? Now, these are very sort of similar in theme to what we talked about at the start of the COVID pandemic, but we certainly aren't going to expect the Russian tax authority to be you know, sympathetic in this situation, especially if the outcome is going to be disadvantageous for them. Um, so I think we can expect aggressive tax audits to come. Um, if you're pulling out of Russian operations or changing supply chain, we also need to consider the potential tax cost for doing this. So both from a direct tax, but also indirect tax perspective. Now, you know, the question might be, how do you value the sale of a Russian business for tax purposes? Not easy. Um, we also need to consider the impact all of this has on, um, both of which might have been concluded, which might be currently being negotiated, but the business changes, they could make it extremely difficult if it was agreed or is being negotiated. So again, the question might be around what other strategic dispute resolutions are there. Um, and I think Nick has a few few further words to say on disputes more generally. Yeah, just quickly to round up on that, and Tomoka trailed a lot of the issues there. You know, expect more audits, expect more investigations, expect more challenges in, in Russia as an economy that's under stress. And within, the, within that, we'd expect matters like valuation and, and supply chain disruption to, to give a rise to a lot of disputes. We'd expect to see an increase in fraud allegations and, and allegations of evasions, given the jurisdiction. But beyond the obvious and, and thinking that there's cause for, for disputes in Russia, what about the wider global position? Well, to the extent that the sanctions regime disrupts intercompany transactions, 
that in itself may not avoid the tax liabilities that would have been consequent upon those transactions. Arms length provisions will still apply, and just because there's been non-payment, because money's may, may be frozen and can't move, that doesn't mean that there won't be a tax liability. Expect to see that potential challenges, depending on the jurisdiction, that may argue that there's been loan arrangements to make the payment, or that you should be treated as having paid some form of non-deductible dividend, or you know even capital contributions. Those are those are the type of challenges we we expect to see see arise. And as a final note on that, to the extent that you've any historical rulings, advanced pricing agreements, or binding assessments that, that have been reached in the past with either Russian tax authorities or anything with the, that's cross-border, then you know treat that with some circumspection as possibly all bets may, may be off. Thank you. Thank you, Nick and Tomoko, and thank you to our, our, our colleagues at Seward and Kissel as well for their video update this morning. Um, I think we're at time now, so we'll, we'll wrap it up here. But as I mentioned, we've got a number of other webinars coming up, which uh, which you may be interested in. So please do check out our resources um, on the link available and contact us as well directly if there's anything in particular that you would like to be hearing about. Um, thanks very much for your time this morning. Uh, and uh, hopefully we will see you all with us on another webinar again soon.